American Catholic History is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Hello and welcome to American Catholic History, sponsored by Beatrix Media, providing writing, digital marketing, website strategy and construction, and search engine optimization services. Visit BeatrixMedia.com. Experience your world communicated. If you like American Catholic history, please help others find it by sharing this episode and giving us a five-star rating wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Noelle Heaster-Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. Today we're talking about the land of the cross-tipped churches. The what? The land of the cross-tipped churches. That's what I thought you said, but it's just such a, an unexpected title. Sounds like something in a fantasy novel. You know, I expect this episode to have like cloaked figures with hidden daggers, lords and ladies full of intrigue, dark forces trying to take over the world and simple faithful peasants who end up being the heroes of the story. So basically, it's like what George R.R. R. Martin would write if he were Catholic. You're crazy. I know. <laughs> oh, I just love the sound. But I just, I just love the sound of the title. The Land of the Cross-Tipped Churches. It is a cool name. But the story doesn't have hidden daggers or lords and ladies with intrigue. But you were onto something when you mentioned faithful peasants being the heroes. Right. And this is one of the reasons why I love this story. It's so paradigmatic of how the faith spread in this country. Just immigrants coming over to live their lives in peace, working hard for prosperity, and bringing their strong faith with them. The legacy of their simple, hardworking lifestyle is prosperous farmland where previously... There were just dense forests and impassable swamps, and a land blessed with beautiful churches and faith-filled descendants. Yeah, it's kind of why we do this podcast. Exactly. I mean, I grew up in Ohio, but I never heard of this region of my own home state until about a year ago. In fairness, you did grow up on the eastern edge of Ohio. Yeah, my parents' home is literally one mile from Pennsylvania. The land of the cross-tip churches is about three and a half hours away, so it's not next door. But still, with a name like the land of the cross-tipped churches, you'd think that someone would make a bigger deal about it, especially to adventure-loving boys. Uh, (laughs) Or maybe just you. I doubt that, but maybe. (laughs) Okay. Enough teasing about this awesomely simple story, so let's tell it. As we said, the land of the cross-tipped churches is here in Ohio. More specifically, it is in a region in western central Ohio. The hub of the region is a town called Maria Stein, Ohio, which is about 35 miles southwest of Lima, Ohio. Lima, for those interested, is where the Abrams tank is built for the U.S. Army and the Marine Corps. This region was originally settled by various German peoples in the first half of the 19th century. What is today Germany, Austria, Eastern France, the Czech Republic, and Western Poland was a patchwork of nation states in the 18th and 19th centuries. Some were Catholic and others were Protestant, and wars between various groupings of them were very common. The result was a lot of upheaval and uncertainty for the rank-and-file farmers and regular people. Lots of them decided to leave their homeland during the this period. And we talked about this a bit way back in episode four when we discussed the Volga Germans who came over in the 1870s and 1880s and built the Cathedral of the Plains in Victoria, Kansas. Frankly, there are parallels between that story and this one. German Catholics came over to farm the land, and when they decided they needed a larger church, 
they built one. But in this case, they didn't just build one huge church for the whole community. They built a series of churches. And the driving force behind the construction of these churches was a German priest by the name of Francis de Sales Brunner. Brunner was a member of the Congregation of the Precious Blood of Jesus. He was born Nicholas Joseph Brunner in 1795 in a Catholic canton in northwest Switzerland called Solothurn. His father died when he was 18, and shortly thereafter, he entered the Benedictine Monastery of Maria Stein, which is located within that same canton. He was given the religious name Francis de Sales and was ordained a priest after a few years of study. But he didn't remain at Maria Stein. He went to a Trappist monastery in 1829, but just the next year, he and all of the Trappists had to abandon their abbey due to the military strife. He did missionary work in different parts of Switzerland for a while, and in 1833, he and his mother, Maria Anna, went on a pilgrimage to Rome. While in Rome, they both became members of the Archconfraternity of the Most Precious Blood. The Archconfraternity was associated with the Congregation of the Most Precious Blood. This men's religious community had been founded in 1815 by Pope Pius VII for the work of re-evangelizing the city of Rome after the Napoleonic Wars. This congregation had a profound impact on both Brunner's mother and son. Frau Brunner, immediately upon returning to Switzerland, formed a woman's community, which became the Sisters of the Most Precious Blood. And a few years later, in 1838, Father Francis de Sales Brunner returned to Rome and became a member of the Congregation of the Most Precious Blood. Now a member of the congregation, he returned to Switzerland with the intention of establishing a German-speaking branch of the congregation. But more wars interfered. But once again, as we've said multiple times about the French Revolution, war in Europe led to a great benefit for the church in America. The Bishop of Cincinnati, John Baptist Purcell, had traveled to Europe to invite priests and religious communities to come to America. Father Bruner initially declined the invitation, but when the wars that popped up like grass fires kept making his work of establishing the congregation difficult, he accepted the bishop's invitation to go make his establishment among the German immigrants who had settled in the frontier wilderness of Ohio. So in 1842, Father Francis de Sales Brunner, with seven priests and seven lay brothers, boarded a ship and set sail for America. They landed at New Orleans and traveled up the Mississippi and Ohio rivers, arriving in Cincinnati on New Year's Day, 1843. Now, this would put them in Ohio about the same time as a couple of missionaries we talked about before, John Baptiste Lamy and John Projectus Machabouf. Yeah. Father Lamy and Father Machabou were both French priests who had come over in 1839 and were active in north-central and extreme northwest Ohio. They were both in Ohio until 1850 when Lamy was named the first bishop of Santa Fe in New Mexico, and he brought Father Machabou with him westward as his vicar general. We talked about Lamy in episode 102, and we will eventually do an episode on Father Machabou, who eventually became the first bishop of Denver. So it's probably safe to say that Fathers Lamy, Machabouf, and Brunner crossed paths on more than one occasion. I, I would imagine so, if only to discuss who was going to handle which huge portion of the Ohio wilderness. Right, because Father Brunner and his merry band of precious blood fathers and brothers went north from Cincinnati and began establishing parishes, schools, and convents all over the northern half of Ohio, even as far east as Geauga County, which is east of Cleveland, up near Lake Erie. They did go that far east, crossing through Lamy's territory, 
But their work was more focused on the western portion of the state, particularly the counties of Auglaise, Dark, Shelby, and Mercer. Beginning in 1843 and going through the next 20 or so years, they worked with local communities of mostly Germans to build small parish churches in New Regal, Minster, Glendorf, New Washington, Fort Laramie, and other nearby towns like the eventual home of Neil Armstrong, Wapakoneta. Now, you might wonder why they built so many smaller churches rather than a few larger churches like the Volga Germans in Victoria, Kansas did. And there are two reasons. First, while the communities were mostly German, they were generally from different parts of Germany. So when they came over, they would keep within their own group, even over here. They had slightly different cultural histories and slightly different German dialects, and they were content to stay within their own community. So each community wanted their own church rather than combining with others. Another reason was more practical and probably was the more important reason. Travel was very difficult at the time. When these Germans first settled in this part of Ohio, as we said, the land was dense forests and thick swampland. Now, that's hard to imagine if you drive through it nowadays. It's mostly just flat farmland, and the the groupings of trees are usually just around homesteads. But back then, it was very different. It took a lot of work to clear and drain land just for farming. Clearing out nice, smooth roads for intercity travel was just not a priority. So they just didn't have easily passable roads to go from community to community to go to church. Having churches in each town was a logistics necessity as much as it was a cultural preference. So led by Father Brunner, the Precious Blood Fathers built churches in all the towns all over the area. Initially, the churches were smaller wooden structures with a few brick ones here and there. But beginning in the late 1860s, things began to change. The communities were a bit more settled and prosperous, and some were outgrowing their original churches. Some just wanted a nicer brick church. One thing that eventually became standard for all of them was a tall spire. This trend started with the Church of St. Aloysius in Carthagena, and the moving force behind this trend was Anton de Curtins. De Curtins was a Swiss builder who came to the U.S. in 1849. He and his wife settled in Carthagena, where they raised their eight children. The de Curtins family designed and built the new church for St. Aloysius in 1877, and on it they placed a tall, slender spire with, yes, a cross at the tip. The trend was born. Over the next 20 years, many more parishes in the area either built new churches or added a spire with a cross to their existing church, and the de Curtins family was involved in pretty much all of them. Working with the Precious Blood Fathers, they did design work, construction, interior decorations with painting, sculpture, and carving things like communion rails and altars. For about 90 years, the de Curtins family was heavily involved in church construction and decoration all over the region. But they weren't the only ones. And this is another part of what makes this story so great. The design, construction, and artistic adornment of the churches was very much a local thing. Some parts were imported from Europe, but a whole lot of the painting, sculpture, and carving was done by local families and men and women in the Precious Blood communities. Real community parishes, something that they built that they could be proud of and call home for generations. And they have loved their churches for generations. Between June of 2020 and July of 2021, a series of articles about the land of the cross-tip churches ran in the Cincinnati Archdiocesan magazine, The Catholic Telegraph, and the woman who wrote it, Susie Bergman, joked, 
Growing up in this area, we always took prideful humor in the fact that most towns consisted of only two important things, a bar and a church. To which I say, what more do you need? Maybe a grocery store? Maybe, but that still sounds like a good basis for a community. (laughs) And of the approximately 60 structures that were originally part of the land of the cross-tipped churches, the land of the cross-tipped churches, churches. sorry, 33 still stand. They include parish churches, of course, plus rectories, schools, convents, and even a seminary. Perhaps the most important one was a convent and chapel built in 1846. They needed a convent because Father Bruner's mother, remember her? There's a reason we talked about her founding the women's community a while back. Well, she had come over in 1844, the year after Father Bruner started doing his thing. She brought with her Sisters of the Precious Blood to teach and help minister to the German Catholics in the region. So they built a convent and Father Bruner donated a painting he had brought with him. It was a painting depicting the miraculous Madonna of Maria Stein, which you'll recall was the abbey he'd been part of back in Switzerland when he first entered religious life. So this new convent took the name Maria Stein and subsequently the town around the convent also took that name. This convent grew to be basically the hub of the land of the cross-tip churches. It became the home of both the sisters and then the men's religious community. And in 1875, it became the home of a tremendous collection of relics, which a priest from Milwaukee had rescued from destruction and neglect in Europe. So here's a little cool side story. In the mid-1800s, relics were falling out of favor in Europe, and many were being lost or just discarded. A priest from Milwaukee, Father John Mary Gartner, went over to Europe and saved over 1,000 relics of saints and even some pieces of the true cross. He brought them all back, and after a time of prayer and searching, he gave them all to the care of the Sisters of the Most Precious Blood at Maria Stein in 1875. At the time, this it the largest collection of relics in the United States, and to this day, the relic shrine still welcomes visitors to pray among so many holy witnesses. Now, you said that this was the largest collection in the U.S. at the time. That's because at about the same time that Father Gardner was collecting relics, another priest, Father Supert Mollinger, was doing the same. His collection was largely completed in the early 1880s, and it went on display, if you will, with the completion of St. Anthony's Chapel in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in 1883. We talked about St. Anthony's Chapel and Father Mollinger in episode 23. St. Anthony's Chapel has more than 5,000 relics, and it is the largest collection of relics outside of Rome. So the collection of Maria Stein was the largest in the U.S. for only seven years, but at over 1,000 relics, it's still pretty impressive. And I'm just happy that we live within an easy day's drive of both locations. We're less than an hour from St. Anthony's Chapel, which we visited, and we're about three and a half hours from Maria Stein, which we will visit. Hmm. Perhaps an official American Catholic History pilgrimage. Hmm. Good idea. Keep your eye out at AmericanCatholicHistory.org slash pilgrimages for how to join us when we go. But anyhow, back to Maria Stein and the other cross-tipped churches all around the land. Yes. So like we said, there are still 33 of the original buildings available for visits, including the relic shrine at Maria Stein. However, some things have changed. Maria Stein is no longer the mother house, and it's not even a convent any longer. The Precious Blood Sisters have moved their headquarters to Dayton, and while the Precious Blood Fathers are still very active in parish ministry in the land of the cross-tipped churches, their provincial headquarters is now in Cincinnati. 
But the local German communities are still proud of their cross-tipped churches and welcome visitors to this historic Holy Land. Recognition of the historic and cultural importance of the region has also come from governmental bodies. In 1979, the 33 remaining buildings were placed on the National Register of Historic Places. And, thanks to the Ohio Department of Transportation, a clearly marked scenic byway guides visitors through the countryside, where many of the spires holding their crosses high can still be seen for miles around. This means that travelers, whether on their own or as part of a pilgrimage, can be edified by the legacy of the simple faith and hard work of German immigrants and the untiring priests and religious who left their mark on the land of the cross-tipped churches. You've been listening to American Catholic History, sponsored by Beatrix Media on the StarQuest Production Network. If you've been enjoying our podcast, please help others find it by sharing this episode and by giving us a five-star rating and a good review. Be sure to check out our sponsor, Beatrix Media, providing writing, digital marketing, website strategy and construction, and search engine optimization services. Visit BeatrixMedia.com. Experience your world communicated. Also, please support the many fine productions of SQPN at sqpn.com slash give. To learn more about the land of the cross-tipped churches, to find previous episodes, or to learn about our upcoming pilgrimages to important and unforgettable Catholic holy sites, please visit AmericanCatholicHistory.org. We also love feedback and hearing about great Catholic history sites and stories from all over. You can email us at history at sqpn.com or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash American Catholic History, on Instagram at ACH underscore podcast, or on Twitter at ACH1513. I'm Noelle Heaster Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. Thank you once again for joining us on American Catholic History, sponsored by Beatrix Media and produced by StarQuest. The land of the cross-tipped churches.